6: Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. This is the first of our two podcasts for the month of May and I'm Dave Musgrove, by
7: the way, the editor of the magazine.
2: And I'm Sue Wingrove, the deputy editor.
6: Coming up this
7: month... I like to leave a little air of mystery about all things including, you know, Sutton Hoo and who's in that grave. That was Angus Wainwright,
6: National Trust archaeologist for Sutton Hoo on what famously lies beneath a field in Suffolk.
3: Engels was the one who really explored the inhumanity of capitalism in a very physical sense. He was the one on the factory floor.
6: And that was historian Tristram Hunt, who wants us to remember Friedrich Engels. More on those matters soon. But first, let me remind you that this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, which this month is an Anglo-Saxon special. We've got Alex Burghardt reviewing the story of Sutton Hoo, and Michael Wood telling us which year saw the making of England. Indeed, Michael's contribution is an edited version of the introduction that he's written to a new book, which BBC History Magazine has just published with Constable and Robinson. It's called The Great Turning Points in British History. This is a collection of the Turning Points series that ran in the magazine, where we asked 20 historians to nominate their key years in history. BBC Radio 4's Today programme picked up on the idea and invited three of the historians onto the programme to make their case. If you missed it, here's the debate, presented by Evan Davis. One way to view
8: history is to think of it as a series of important turning points. Something big happens that sets the direction for the next half century or so... The details get filled in, of course, but then the next big turning point comes along. A new book is published this week called Great Turning Points in British History, a collection of essays. So, three historians out of 20, I think, who've contributed to the volume, join us now to pitch for particular years that they think set a new path for the life of the nation. And I believe each of them was allocated a period from which to pick a turning point. Our three are Michael Wood, Anglo-Saxon specialist and TV presenter, uh, Professor Mark Ormrod from the University of York and Professor Pat Thane from the Institute of Historical Research. Good morning to you all. Good morning. Good, morning. Good, morning. Good morning. Well, let's start with you, Michael Wood. You have about a minute to give us your year and why it was a big and important turning point.
9: Well, uh, I'm going to be embarrassing here because I really agree with Pat and and Mark on their choices on the (laughs) wide scale. Um, You know, the the kind of modern Suez period and the Black Death period. But I was asked, what were the turning points pre-1066? And I chose 927, which is the creation of the Kingdom of England. And they understood that this was created at the time. And with all our obsessions with the British at the moment and the Scots and Great Britain, we tend to forget that it's the English state which is at the core of our history. So the creation of the state of england in 927 by alfred the great's grandson gives us not only the structures the the organization of the country the shires and the hundreds and the local courts and things but national law national coinage and and a sense of england and being uh, english whatever your race um whatever your language so i think that creation of an allegiance or let me put it this way the beginning of a creation of an allegiance because of course it was very rocky for 100 or 200 years is of crucial moment. This completed England, said no- a poet in 927.
8: 927, perhaps even as important as 1066 in some regards, and obviously the creation of England was important to Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland as well. Professor Mark Ormrod, what about your year?
5: My year is 1348, the first arrival of the Black Death uh, into Britain. This was a cataclysm of unimaginable proportions. Within a generation of 1348, the plague had reduced the population of this country by anything up to a half. This is the biggest human tragedy ever suffered in these islands. But out of this disaster came enormous change and enormous uh, hope and development. Um, the, The plague fundamentally altered the balance between people and resources and led to a major redistribution of wealth down the social scale... This prompted a huge shift towards pastoral farming that made wool one of the greatest economic commodities of the country and, of course, in turn, turned Britain into a nation of cloth makers. And it shifted the population away from the countryside towards towns sponsoring manufactures and trade and serving the new prosperity of the lower orders. All in all, then, the plague turned a peasant economy into a proto-capitalist one and paved the way, I think, for the agrarian and industrial revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries.
8: And this is because there was a shortage of labor so the terms of trade the the the, the amount that the peasants could get for their labor had to up effectively relative to the people who were employing them.
5: The value of labour increased hugely uh, across the 14th and 15th centuries. In the 15th century, um, uh, the, the, the real value of, of, of wage labour was as high as it was in the early 20th century and it's very noticeable also uh, how this new accommodation gave new independence and social status to women who were very, very much needed and valued within this workforce. Um, the, the, the 14th and 15th centuries are sometimes called the golden age a, of women.
8: A, a very good candidate year. 13, 14- 48 to go with 927. Well, Pat Thane, I think you were asked to pick one far more recently. What's the one you've picked?
4: 1956. <laughs> and I can't beat the Black Death, but the big events <laughs> in 1956, of course, was Suez, the ign- ignominious withdrawal, which really symbolised that Britain was no longer a 1st rank power and we couldn't ignore it. It's also the time that colonialism is spectacularly collapsing. There are insurgencies, as they were known, in Malaya, Cyprus, Mau Mau in Kenya, all of which led on to independence quite quickly. It's the year Ghana became independent. At home, things were turning in a more favourable direction. It was the year after Harold Macmillan made his famous statement, most of our people have never had it so good, and he was right. There was full employment and living standards were rising as never before.
8: So, fact, it, sorry. It, so it was the year, really, Britain stopped being a, an, an empire and started being a nation, yeah. and that was a very significant turning point. But I'm just wondering whether 1956 was a turning point or whether it was a year in which this had already turned and this was actually just the year in which it became, if you like, symbolised or became yeah. obvious.
4: I think that's certainly true. Um, I mean, the, the Britain's relative weakness of great power has been evident since the end of the war, and Suez just makes it very obvious to everybody. Colonialism in, had been crumbling since the end of the war, and of course India had had independence in 1947, which was a big change. And similarly, living standards had been rising, owing a lot to the work of Attlee's post-war government.
8: Well it's, uh, it, we've got 3 years there 927 1348 1956 Michael Wood did you um did you enjoy having to pick a year or do it, you it, historians find it all a bit facile it, it just was, very briefly
9: No no it was absolutely great I mean I think you've hit on the, uh, an important thing here which is some years uh, that have been chosen crystal or are, are de- demonstrate the crystallization of change and some like 1066 are actually Need dramatic there. dramatic breaks well,
6: Michael Wood Michael Ormrod, Pat Thane thank you The Great Turning Points in British History, published by Cunstall and Robinson, is available from the BBC History bookstore for £6.29. And thanks to the Today programme for that. Thanks indeed to all of you who got back to me last month to tell me where you're listening from. It seems there's a lot of you downloading this from the US, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. So thanks to everyone.
2: BBC History magazine is produced by BBC magazines in the UK. It comes out monthly and you can get it delivered to you anywhere in the world. We'll give details of how to subscribe later on in the podcast. Now, as Dave said earlier, this month we have an Anglo-Saxon theme to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the excavation of the amazing Anglo-Saxon boat burial at Sutton Hoo. Dave spoke to Angus Wainwright, the National Trust archaeologist for the site, to find out what we know about this 7th century survival.
6: OK, so Angus, if I if I were to go down to Sutton Hoo tomorrow, what would I see there?
7: Well, of course, the most important thing to to look at down there is the site itself, which is um, a group of mounds uh, overlooking the estuary of the River Deben, which is uh, just by Woodbridge uh, in Suffolk. Um, but what the National Trust has provided for our uh, for its visitors is. Um, a big exhibition which explains uh, the significance of Sutton Hoo and the Anglo-Saxons of the 7th century.
6: Now there's, there's a number of mounds at Sutton Hoo, aren't they? Are they all thought to date to the 7th century?
7: Often you find that uh, Anglo-Saxon cemeteries surround or use pre-existing cemeteries so the Anglo-Saxons looked in, at the landscape and spotted mounds maybe Bronze Age or Neolithic mounds and used them to bury their own dead in and then establish their own uh, uh, mounds around them and for a long time that was thought to be the case at Sutton Hoo but the excavations from the 1980s really showed that that was probably not the case. What we think actually happened was that there is actually another cemetery at Sutton Hoo, and that's one that was found during our developments there, which is a short distance away. And that one in fact does have a bronze age barrow in it. So we think what happened was that that, that was where the original Anglo-Saxon cemetery was founded. And then the, the Kings of, of East Anglia sort of moved out of that one and, form their own sort of royal burial ground which is the famous one with the ship burial in it.
6: Now, so Sutton Hoo today is a name that uh, many people would associate with exciting archaeology and, and really rich finds 70 years ago um, maybe not so many people would have heard of it so Angus can you take us back to what was happening in 1939 at Sutton Hoo and how the uh, how the, 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 the most amazing archaeological discovery was was made?
7: But um, well, you have to really sort of go back to 1937 um, 1937 there was a sort of tea party or fate at um in woodbridge and the owner of the estate mrs pretty uh chatted to a local historian there and they talked about these mounds on her estate which nobody had really sort of noted noted particularly before before this um and she got the idea that maybe it would be a good idea to excavate some of them so the next year She employed a chap called Basil Brown, who was a bit of a rarity, really, at that time. He was a professional excavator. And at that kind of date, really, most people were academics who were involved in archaeology or amateurs. But he was a professional digger, mostly working for Ipswich Museum and Mrs. Pretty employed him to come and investigate the mounds, and he discovered that they weren't Bronze Age or prehistoric. They were indeed Anglo-Saxon, uh, which is fairly unusual, and in one of them was evidence of a ship burial. The, these were the iron uh, rivets which attached the timbers of the ship together. Um, this is ext- extremely rare. As at that date, there was only one other known from England, and that was not very far away at Snape, This is a really Scandinavian type of burial ritual. Um, But unfortunately, it was clear that all the graves, all the mounds had been robbed. So he didn't find very much in the way of the the objects which had been buried along with the people in them, just tiny little fragments. Um, 1939 comes along and Mrs. Pretty asks him to come back and look at the big mound on the cemetery, uh, which we call Mound 1. And really, this was May of... Uh, 1939, and almost, I think, well, sort of two or three days into the excavation, they start finding these ship rivets again, Um, and Basil Brown, the, the archaeologist, was able to work out that these were not undisturbed, they were still in position, and he could see that there were traces of wood as well, a sort of black stain in the sand, and he basically followed he'd struck the bow of the ship and he basically followed it into the mound getting bigger and bigger and bigger um, until he'd, by the end of the summer, uncovered a 27-metre-long uh, ship. That's the largest uh, Anglo-Saxon ship known and also the earliest and the most complete. And it's really only marginally shorter than the longest Viking longship from you know, a few hundred, couple of hundred years later. So if that's all he'd discovered, it would have been a sort of find of international significance. But he also discovered in the centre of the ship that the burial chamber hadn't been robbed. Um, the grave robbers had tried to dig it out, but they what we think is they'd probably missed it because part of the mound had been quarried away, and so they excavated into what they thought was the centre of the mound, but it wasn't actually the centre of the mound, and they missed the burial chamber. Um but, obviously, <laughs> this was an excavation taking place at a corner, a distant corner of Suffolk, and um, nobody was very much interested in it. There was Basil Brown and a couple of chaps from Mrs. Pretty's estate who were doing the digging, but as the ship was uncovered and the burial chamber was approached, the news got out, and then the sort of great niggard of English, or British archaeology at the time kind of congregated at Sutton Hoo, and they basically persuaded Mrs. Pretty to hand the excavation over to a much more uh, expert team led by a chap called Charles Phillips and unfortunately Basil really was sort of relegated to uncovering the rest of the ship while Charles Phillips's team excavated the burial chamber itself now what they found was that the the chamber had obviously Collapsed under the weight of the mound on top of it, so the objects themselves were sort of crushed into this mass of rotted, blackened sort of timber, um, and a lot of them have been very badly damaged. And also in the acid conditions of the soil there, the sandy soil, a lot of the iron work and certainly the organics had uh, rotted almost entirely away. And that goes for the body itself. There was no evidence for that at all. Um, but the gold that was came out of the ground exactly the way it went into the ground sort of uh, over a thousand years before. And this is the most, well, it's the most magnificent grave uh, really known from anywhere in northern Europe from uh, the early medieval period. The objects in it, nearly all of them are of the absolute highest quality. Um, they include silver from uh the eastern roman empire the largest collection i believe from a grave in anywhere in northern europe from the period this gold uh gold uh, jewelry which is made probably by a jeweler uh to the east anglian courts and that's of the most magnificent design as as well as sort of quality and uh richness in terms of the use of gold Wooden vessels, ma- massive drinking horns, two liters, two liter drinking horns, um, uh, tubs for beer called bronze cauldrons for cooking food, uh, weapons, magnificent shield, probably, well, almost certainly made in Sweden, um, and there's a very interesting link between East Anglia and um, the sort of Uppsala area of. of of sweden in the design and sort of uh, art of the objects and in, indeed in the case of the shield probably the site of manufacture and in the ship burial ritual itself so yes it's probably it's the most spectacular archaeological find ever made in this country
6: and there's now a, a general consensus, I think, that it's the grave of one specific king. Would you Is that
7: fair to say? Um, well, you know, in archaeology, nothing can be certain. And um, the, there's a king called Redwald, who was the most powerful king of East, East Anglia. He dominated um, all the other kings of the surrounding kingdoms and was acknowledged as the dominant king in, in what later became England. Um and it was pretty rapidly thought that this must be his grave but we just have to say that the dating of it is not precise and it the dating could include uh, a few other kings of east anglia and maybe if we had more undisturbed royal graves from the pagan anglo-saxon period perhaps we wouldn't think the sutton who mound one was so remarkable for example Mound Two at Sutton Hoo, with its ship, may well have been just as rich as Mound One, and then perhaps we wouldn't be so quick to say that it's Redwald. But most people would say, you know, the likelihood is it's Redwald's grave.
6: Are you are you not convinced it's Redwald?
7: Um, I like to leave a little air of mystery about all things, including you know Sutton Hoo and who's in that grave. Um, uh, but I think the, the likelihood is. But it it. it it could, be, uh, it could be a number of other people. Just to be controversial, it could be maybe Sigebert, who was a, a fervidly uh, Christian king. Um, but actually, there's no uh, requirement of the church at that period to, for people to be buried without grave goods. And it has been remarked that the body... Has no personal adornments like uh, rings and that sort of thing, so he could have been in his coffin with no um adornment but surrounded uh, with all this magnificence uh, in a in a sort of pagan style. That's a sort of controversial um, uh, kind of theory which I wouldn't like to sort of propagate too much but but it's an interesting idea. It just just shows that we mustn't
1: be too quick to make these kind of assumptions. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of, and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello.
1: So, that was Angus Wainwright. You can read more about Sutton
6: Hoo and how our knowledge of Anglo-Saxon history has progressed since 1939 in the May issue of the magazine.
2: Now, UK listeners who subscribe to BBC History magazine before the 26th of May 2009 will save a pound on every issue of the magazine. That works out at just £2.60 an issue. For more details, go to www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine. You can also call us on 0844 844 0250 and quote the code POD112. Now that offer is for UK listeners. If you are listening outside the UK, you'll be pleased to learn you can get the magazine sent to you anywhere in the world. Just call plus 44 1795 44728 for more details.
6: Let's go on to Friedrich Engels. Tristram Hunt has written a new book on this once famous but now somewhat forgotten communist in which he calls for a revival in our understanding of the man. BBC History magazine features editor Rob Attar called him to find out more.
10: What has inspired you to write a book about Friedrich Engels?
3: Well, I first came across Engels when I was a young boy at school and I had a very inspiring history teacher who took us through the condition of the working class in England. Engels is a great classic, I must have been like 11 or 12, and I was always slightly mesmerised by them. And then I obviously came across Engels when I was working on the Victorian city and uh, Victorian civic pride, and again, Engels' accounts of Manchester in the 1840s and 50s, and I was sort of drawn to the character because it's one of this intense personal contradiction between the life he lived as a mill owner, a member of the bourgeoisie, and then obviously his ideology as a revolutionary socialist. And so I did some more digging and found there wasn't quite the biography I needed. So I decided to write it myself.
10: Why do you think he's remained so much in the shadow of Karl Marx these days?
3: Well, Marx was always the genius, as Engels called him. I mean, Engels called him first fiddle compared to his second fiddle. And the ideology has Marx's name, and Marx did write Das Kapital. And Marx was a finer philosopher in many ways than Engels. But I think what that tends to do is, first of all, devalue Engels's contribution to the development of Marxism, which was enormously important both in terms of practical understanding of capitalism and in some of the early philosophical developments and then also it sort of obliterates some of the more interesting elements of marxism which engels pursued in terms of feminism or how we understand our cities or military theory all sorts of other areas of thought and and that's what i focus really on in the book
10: has engels always been overshadowed by marx or is that more of a recent phenomenon
3: he really began to be overshadowed, I'd say, from the 1860s, 1870s. When they first met in the mid-1840s, actually, Engels was just as well-known as a young Gaginian, as a sort of proto-communist, and they sort of met as equals almost. But then Engels takes this extraordinary decision to step backwards, to allow Marx to claim the full mantle. And then Engels consciously works to promote Marx's work, to promote Marx's thinking, to promote Marx the man in the 1860s and 1870s. So being in the shadows has been quite a long time.
10: And do you think that Marx could have had the same kind of impact without having Engels on its side?
3: That's a good question. I mean, Engels always said that ultimately Marx would have done it even had he not been there. But I think there are an awful lot of elements of Marxist thinking which clearly are indebted to Engels. Engels was the one in the condition of the working class in England, first of all, who really explored the inhumanity of capitalism in a very physical sense. He was the one on the factory floor. He was the one who walked through the worst parts of Manchester, etc. So he gave the sort of philosophy of Marx Marx and the quite highfalutin idealism of Marx in many ways, a very real, a very physical sensibility of actually what capitalism did to people on the ground.
10: What would you see as Engels' most important work?
3: I think his most important work is probably The Condition of the Working Class in England, written when he was only 24, or 25, because, as Marx said, it's got this passion, it's got this energy, denunciation of capitalism, the kind of capitalism we now see again at work in places like China and Brazil and Russia. I think, as it were, historically, probably his most important work is something we never read now, which is Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, which was basically a precy of Marxist thought, written much later in the century, comes out, 1870s, 1880s, but this was, as it were, your out and keep guide to Marxism, and this is the one everyone read, because they couldn't face slogging through Das Kapital, so actually they just go for this this shorter, punchier version, and this converted huge numbers uh, towards Marxism.
10: Something that you mentioned earlier was that Engels was actually a factory worker, he was a capitalist as well. How was he able to square that with his beliefs?
3: Well, this was always one of the great tensions between his philosophy and his personal life, his professional life. He was the heir to this manufacturing firm, Erman & Engels, and then he worked for 20 years from 1850 to 1870 in Erman & Engels in Manchester. The justification was always that he was doing it to support Marx, that Marx would not have been able to write Das Kapital without Engels providing the financial support so that the Marx family could live, so that Marx could spend his days in the British Museum. So this was his great sacrifice for socialism, uh, was working, huckstering, accursed commerce, as he used to call it. He absolutely hated it. But he would never apologize for it, and he regarded those who said, "Oh, well, he shouldn't work; he should do this," really as confused, petty bourgeois critics, because there was a grander truth, there was a bigger purpose going on, and that was making sure Marx got Das Kapital right.
10: Did you make a special effort to ensure his workers were treated well at the factory?
3: The workers were not treated badly. I mean, there's nothing in the letters we see about Engels saying, oh, we have to improve, you know, the condition of the workers in the factories because there's this interesting tension between actually the workers need to be immiserated in order to realize their class consciousness in order to march towards revolution and the, the humanity, the fact that this is the proletariat and Engels should be about, in a sense, supporting the proletariat. But those we know, there were two mills, there was the Victorian mill and the Bencliffe mill, and evidence we have, particularly about the Bencliffe mill, shows actually the workers there were, relative to other mill workers in Manchester, pretty well treated.
10: Was Engels able to use his work in the factory to inform his beliefs as well?
3: Oh, absolutely, in terms of seeing how capitalism works. We have these extraordinary letters from Marx to Engels saying, can you talk me through the depreciation of cost of machinery? Can you talk me through your payroll? Can you talk me through the exchange rate? All the sort of mechanics of capitalism are then fed back toward Marx to help him understand how capitalism works on the ground for the writing of Das Kapital.
10: Many communist regimes in the 20th century cited Engels as an influence, but how closely would you say they really followed his views and their policies?
3: I don't think Engels would sign off on many of the communist regimes, the state socialist regimes of the 20th century. You definitely have this appeal to Engels, and many came towards Marxism through Engels' writing. But if you look at communist parties, they become these very introverted, very orthodox, sect-like movements in Russia under Lenin in Ethiopia and East Germany. And actually, Engels, particularly towards the end of his life, was a far more pluralist thinker, was a far more open thinker, and I don't think would have appreciated the kind of totalizing idea of what communism came, the dialectical materialism which Stalin propagated, was really a very long way from the sort of thinking Engels was about. There are certainly elements of Engelsian rhetoric and all the rest of it, but I, I think the kind of state socialism we saw, and remember, Engels was the one about the withering away of the state and this leap from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom, as he called it. Well, there wasn't much freedom, I don't think, in many of the state socialist movements in the 20th century.
10: So has his reputation perhaps been unfairly damaged by his association with those regimes?
3: Oh, I think so, and I think we've seen this extraordinary thing in recent years of Marx is increasingly celebrated as the great critic of capitalism, particularly in our current day and age, the one who really got to grips with the globalized, all-consuming nature of capitalism, whereas Engels is sort of left holding the bag for the 20th century regimes, and we can blame nasty old Engels for all those totalitarian regimes we don't like, whereas Marx was just a great, insightful critic of capitalism, and I think that sort of landing Engels that the baggage of that is slightly unfair
10: So does Engels himself have any answers to the current economic problems we're going through?
3: This is the thing, I mean, I think Marx and Engels are better on the critique than they are on the answers. I certainly think Engels is incredibly perceptive about the kind of red in tooth and claw capitalism we see at work in places like the BRIC Nations, the Chinas, the Indias, the Russias, and the human costs of that capitalism, which you see in places like Shenzhen or Bangalore or whatever. I mean, Engels speaks to that very profoundly. In terms of post-capitalist settlement, I'm not a believer as it were. I don't think the solutions which Marx and Engels came up with were necessarily particularly credible. So I think it's a very insightful critique, but not necessarily a wholly convincing solution.
10: Would he have seen some of the problems going on with today's global meltdown?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the instability of capitalism, sort of the ability of capitalism as it were to sort of eat itself, the destructive capacity of it, was very much in Engels' thinking. He was the one on the stock exchange floor in Manchester in the 1850s and 1860s who watched these great crashes, who reported on oversupply on the markets, followed by massive runs on shares, followed by cotton famines, all the rest of it. So the instability of capitalism, which is what we're witnessing at the moment, was something he was very, very familiar with.
10: Finally, do you think it's time that Engels had a reappraisal then?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the great benefit now is with 20 years on from the fall of the Berlin Wall, the kind of Leninist shadow which suffused the thinking of Marx and Engels in the 20th century is being lifted. So now we can return to their ideas in their context. And I think in terms of their critique of capitalism, in terms of their ideas about feminism, in terms of their ideas about some Darwinian thinking, all these very, very fruitful, very interesting ideas for the present. And then you also just have this extraordinarily personal Personal story of a man in the Victorian milieu, the man in mid-Victorian Manchester, living this double life as a revolutionary communist and a good member of the Manchester bourgeoisie.
6: You can read Tristram Hunt's feature in the May issue of the magazine. His book, *The Frock-Coated Communist*, is published by Penguin on the first of May.
2: And that brings us to the end of this podcast from BBC History Magazine. For more on these topics, plus all our other features, do look out for the May issue. You might also want to check out our website. There you'll be able to subscribe to the magazine, buy recommended history books through our BBC History Bookstore, or download previous podcasts. The address is www.bbchistorymagazine.com.
6: Thanks for listening. Uh, do look out for part two of this month's podcast, which will feature a Nazi murderer story and take a look inside a Tudor diary. Before we go, as ever, you can email me at Musgrove at bbcmagazinesbristol.com, twitter at me at www.twitter.com forward slash mag, or even better, sign up to be a member of our readers' panel to really tell me what you think about the podcast and magazine. It's easy to become a panellist. Just go to HTTP. Colon four slash four slash panel dot bbcmagazines dot com and follow the instructions.